Tēnā koutou nō mai, hi to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. It is wonderful to be back with you on Sunday mornings. First up today, Megan Woods. She's now in charge of quarantining and isolation. Have we finally got this right? Then, the National MP who spent more than two years refusing our interview requests. Can you tell me why you won't give me an interview? Judith Collins is here with her new memoir as she reflects on a colourful career in politics. The thing with me is that people get exactly what they see. I apologise. That is very extraordinary for me. That interview up shortly. But first, the government is set to release a review into quarantine and testing processes after dozens of Kiwis were let out of quarantine without being tested for COVID-19. Minister Megan Woods has been given the responsibility for overseeing the quarantining and testing processes after officials were criticised for some errors at the border. Minister Megan Woods is with us from Wellington this morning. Tēnāko, welcome to Q&A. Morena, Jack. Your review, uh, you're releasing the review this afternoon. Can you give us any details at this stage? Well, I think um, one of the things that um, everyone will know is that this has been um, a very swift piece of work. This was something that Air Commodore Webb uh, commissioned, I think it seems like a lifetime ago, but I think it was probably in reality a week and a half ago um, that this was commissioned, just to look at what are the systems, um, the systems issues that we have to look at um, to tighten up as the system grows. I think uh, one of the things that not many people have an appreciation of is just how quickly the system has had to scale up over mm. the last three or four weeks. So I don't think there will be any big surprises in it for anyone, Jack. I think the things that were diagnosed right at the beginning when the Prime Minister asked um, us to, to uh, take the lead on this, the fact there needed to be uh, clearer lines of accountability and responsibility as we moved away from the initial mm. emergency response phase um, into a more permanent um, uh, medium-term to longer-term permanent solution. We needed to make sure that testing was happening and we needed to make sure that um, everybody staying in the facilities clearly understood what was expected of them and that we had enough personnel on the ground to make sure um, that we, we did have some compliance around those rules as well. As of this morning Minister, can New Zealanders have confidence in the quarantining process? Yes they can. Look, over the last um, six, over the last um, ten or so days um, we've been out and we've visited six of these facilities. Um, mm. What I've seen is um, a, a system that is is working well. Uh, we have um, at least four New Zealand Defence Force personnel at each of our 21 facilities. Uh, there's a huge number of staff and Jack I'd just like to take the opportunity to say um, a huge number of staff, over 600, they range from NZDF right through to mm. um, health and security workers but also those hotel workers um, and I'd like to thank them for the job they're doing. So from a systems point of view, yes, people can have faith, but one of the things that I'm also really conscious of is we are mm. reliant on everybody in the facilities following the rules. Starting this week, you will get daily updates as That's to the right. number of people being tested versus the number of people who should be tested in these quarantine facilities. What, what is the benefit of that kind of detail? Well, that's, that's just um, a, a check um, at a ministerial level and also um, Air Commodore Web will also get that data, so at an operational level. The, so so, we can so check. why is that only starting this week? 
So one of the things that we have been monitoring very closely um, over the, the course of uh, the last week is the inflows and the outflows, which speaks to capacity. We have also been getting testing numbers around the day three and day 12, but what I've also asked is that we have kind of um, the actuals against the planned, so but, we but can what, see. But why haven't we had that earlier? That's my question. Look, this is gathering all the different strands of data together. No, this but that's is an easy strand to get, isn't it? The, the actuals versus, versus the number of people who should be tested. Why, why well, have we waited this long to get it's that, not that It's not that it doesn't that it, it hasn't existed before, Jack. What I'm saying is I want to report on my desk every morning. But, but why, uh, with why hasn't anyone there. else had that report until Look, now? I, I, I can't speak to that, but what I can speak to is the fact that that's a report I want to see on my desk um, so that when I'm overseeing um, from a ministerial level whether or not this is a system that is working. We but, can track that. New Zealanders need to yeah. have faith, not only that day three, but most importantly, um, that people aren't being released without a negative COVID test being returned. Of course, it's really important, but, but I, I just want to dig into this a little bit. Why have we not had ministerial oversight of that very basic information up until this point? Well, I think one of the things is that bear in mind that the requirement for testing only came in on the 9th of June, um, that up to that period of time mm. that what we were doing was um, following the public health So that's advice. a two-week two period, right, from the 9th yeah. of June until when you took over. So there's two weeks there where there was no minister asking for basic information as to the number of people who should be tested in quarantine versus the number of people who were actually being tested. Look, Jack, I'm not saying it wasn't being asked for. What I'm saying is talking about is a particular form that I've asked it for, it, it asked for it to be presented to, to me in, which is a, a, more, a report each morning that shows me the number of people who are checking in, the number of people who are checking out, what but the capacity we're bringing most, on, and the testing. Vulnerable, the most vulnerable area for New Zealand right now, whereas we don't have community spread, fortunately, we want to protect the, the massive gains right. we've made over the last couple of months. It seems extraordinary that at a ministerial level we wouldn't have been getting that report for the two weeks before you took over in this role. Well, I think even in that period of time, uh, Jack, Jack, the complexity of this operation grew. But that's that not complex, is it? I mean, I mean, how many people should be tested every day? How many people have been tested? That is a that is a basic piece of information, and I would have thought one of the most important pieces of information for anyone offering ministerial oversight of this process. And one of the things that the the, the public can have faith in is that this will be presented daily. Mm. Um, that we they will be able to see that people aren't being released um, into the community until that we have that cast iron guarantee mm. that they've returned a, a negative COVID so, test. So but I do just, whose fault I, is it that we that we didn't have it before this point? Look, Jack, what I'm interested in is what happens in the future. The no, job but, but, but I've I mean, been for us tasked to, have confidence, to do. I know, but for us, for us as the New Zealand public to have confidence in this process, we need to understand where errors have been made in the past and who is responsible for those errors. So who is responsible for not giving us that data in the past? Look, we'll see. We've got the review that's coming out today. This is certainly something we are looking for system vulnerabilities. We have been doing that over the last week and a half, seeing where it is that we need to, to tighten things. But one thing that I do want to reassure people mm. around is, of course, the testing is an extra line of defence. But the most important public health measure that we take is that we do keep people in managed isolation for 14 days. Uh, that, that's yeah. what we did before June 9, and it's how we stopped community transfer mission in this country and I think everybody does need to realise um, how well we have done as mm. a country and our managed isolation which is some of the one of the most robust in the yeah. world I mean, um, has got us to this incredible we, position. We certainly have done well I, I don't think anyone is disputing that we've done well up to this point but but I suppose the, the scrutiny and rigour around the quarantining processes 
is there because we want to protect the gains that we've made up to this point. We heard earlier in the week uh, Health Minister David Clark pin the blame for some of the issues at quarantining on the Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield. Was that a fair analysis? Look, I think one of the things that um, both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Health have talked about is the fact that um, we had an expectation as a Cabinet around what was happening as te uh, with testing. Mm. In terms of operationalising that into a growing and very complex system, that that hadn't been stood up. It had been prioritised to do the day 12 tests so that they were there before release. But one of the things that we've said, we need this day 3 testing as well. We need certainty um, as a Cabinet um, that that testing is taking mm. Place that one of the things that we have seen this week, which I think can give the public confidence, is we're seeing that that day three testing has a number of the cases that we've seen this week have been picked up at day three testing, and we've been able to move those people away from managed isolation into right. the quarantine facility. So, Minister, we have more than 4,000 people currently in quarantine. I understand the limit is just over 4,500. How many more people can we take? So we, what the the modelling that we've seen as a cabinet um, looks at four uh, percent growth each fortnight. Um, the, because, of course, what we're dealing with here is a demand-driven system. Mm. What we're talking about is New Zealand citizens and permanent residents who have a legal right to come home. I think we all want to think um, that if we're overseas and we need to get home, we can, that there's no impediment to us getting here. So to some extent, um, we're dealing with um, the number of people who book a pl plane ticket because yeah. we have more and more commercial flights but, but, but how, how that are coming in. how many are we expecting? Well, what I've said is the modelling we're seeing is 4% growth um, every fortnight over the, mm. um, to the end of the year. Um, um, that could change. It depends what else happens in the world. We're seeing record tests return in other countries yeah. returning positive. I mean, Kiwis want to get home, and I can understand that. We're yeah. in an incredibly fortunate position in this country through all of our hard work. But is one of the things we are looking at doing is what measures we need to put in place from a policy perspective to try and smooth that demand. Yeah, can, what can you do there? Can you, can, you, can you speak to airlines and ask them to slow down with the number of New Zealanders who are coming back? So we have been speaking to airlines, so Air Commodore Webb and I have had meetings this week um, with, with, with airlines. Um, it's not even what, what so much... What have you told them? What we've said is that um, we have very predictable 14-day cycles on this because of the period of time we need to keep people. So, for example, we have um, today, we only have 35 people projected to come in, and we have 206 people checking out mm. who will finish their 14 days. But tomorrow, we have 764 coming in and 400 151 checking out. So we know our in and out flows. If we can get some of the phasing around um, around the days in which we have people coming in and out, it will actually allow us to operate the system in a much smoother way. It's also about where flights land, um, that we have capacity stood up around the country, and if we can minimise mm. the need to do domestic air transfers, which I do want to stress, are on um, dedicated charter flights. They're not on commercial flights that members of the public might be um, might be uh, on. That, right. That's all really important. So it's not only about slowing down, it's about actually getting the complex operations right. And I think that's one of the things that people have to realise, just this is the most um, yeah, complicated it's, it's operation I've complex. ever seen. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so what you're saying is you bring people back into the country and then it may be that in some of those cases, if we have capacity issues, 
you look at taking them to other centres. So you look at taking them to, to cities uh, where we perhaps haven't had quarantine facilities in the past. I just want to ask you very quickly, later in the programme this morning, we're going to be speaking with the Vice-Chancellor mm -hmm. of Victoria University. And of course, tertiary institutions are very keen to get foreign fee-paying students back into New Zealand as soon as possible, preferably before the start of the second semester this year. Is that at all feasible? Well, the Minister of Education has been quite clear. We can't expect that in July or August. Um, we've got to make sure before um, that we give this a tick from a, from a um, policy or a cabinet point of mm. view uh, that we have absolute certainty about the robustness of the ability to quarantine over and above the New Zealanders who are returning home. I've heard some suggestions that people are talking about that they can use X, Y or Z facility, but we have very clear health criteria about what kinds of facilities that can be used. There, we can't use facilities that have shared bathrooms, for example, and a number of the suggestions I've heard are talking about um, halls of residence where there are common bathrooms. So that's not going to get a tick from right. a health perspective. The, the first and foremost for us as a government has to be making sure we're protecting New Zealanders and protecting the gains that we have made. Mm. The worst thing we could do is open this up too soon um, and risk everything that we've got. We've got to, to remember point. COVID yeah. is growing, not slowing around the world. To right. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Minister Thank you. Megan Woods. Our political panel will be in shortly to reflect on that, but next, National MP Dr Yang Jian was a member of the Chinese military and admits he may have trained Chinese spies. He says he has nothing to hide, but he spent years refusing our interview requests. I mean, how can you get away with this stuff? It's unbelievable. I can promise you, I mean, I can assure you that in this regard, New Zealand is a laughing stock. Hoki Mayano, welcome back. National MP Dr Yang Jian earns $179,000 a year. He's the chair of the Governance and Administration Select Committee and the opposition spokesperson for statistics. Like all MPs, he has been elected to Parliament as a representative of the New Zealand public, a representative of you and me. But after it was revealed he had previously worked as a language trainer in a Chinese military intelligence school and that he used to be a card-carrying member of the Chinese Communist Party, Dr Yang Jian stopped taking questions. For more than two years now, we've been seeking an interview with him. We wanted to ask him about the New Zealand-China relationship, tensions in Hong Kong and the ongoing questions over his suitability to be a member of New Zealand's parliament. Here's Fina Owen. Dr Yang Jian has skills. A list member of parliament for nine years, he was recently promoted from 33 on the list to 27. The Chinese New Year means a lot to us. Prior to September 2017, Dr Young appeared occasionally in the mainstream media. Then 10 days out from the general election, he was all over it. I refute any allegations that question my loyalty to New Zealand. It was revealed that in China, Yang Jian had been a civilian officer in the People's Liberation Army, teaching English to intelligence students in a foreign languages institute that's part of China's military intelligence apparatus. They were using that English to monitor the communications of other countries. Mm -hmm. Okay, so mm. spying. Okay, if you say spying, then spying. Yeah, spying. yeah. Jamil Andalini, a Mandarin speaker who lived in China for 20 years, is now Asia editor for the Financial Times. He broke the story along with Newsroom three years ago. It really astonished me um, to find that someone who had spent 15 years 
in China's military intelligence establishment uh, was serving as a parliamentarian in New Zealand. In the 90s, Dr Young moved first to Canberra, then to Auckland. He maintains he is not a spy and says he resigned from the Chinese Communist Party when he came to New Zealand. That is the most intrusive state surveillance breach of our privacy possible. Not only uh, was he in Parliament, but he was also uh, on the, uh, at one point on the uh, Select Committee for Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade, which is, is just sort of mind-boggling when you think about it. Dr Young's regarded as a hard worker in his roles, but engages only with the Chinese media. Economist and China specialist Rodney Jones. We don't know anything more uh, about Young Jan than, than we did three years ago. He, he's, he's kind of the invisible man. Thanks for seeing us. You're welcome. Welcome to my office. Right. On Q&A in early 2018, the programme was running quick MP profiles in a segment called Tatari, the office, a chance for viewers to get to know the human, lighter side of their MPs, a great opportunity, we thought, for Dr Young to reveal himself more to New Zealanders. So on the 4th of April 2018, I rang Dr Young's office. His PA said put the request in an email, which I did, and she responded the same day. Thank you for the email. Dr Young would like to decline the request. So I wrote back asking if that was a no for now or indefinitely. Dear Fenner, that would be the latter. Then in mid-May I wrote to Dr Young's office again asking if he'd reconsidered. Thanks for email. Dr Young declines the request. Other journalists also wanted to talk to the invisible MP. Dr Zhen Yang, MP, who was in a room just a few metres away, simply refused to come out. In 2019, we had more questions for Dr Yang about his relationship with China. In September, he'd arranged the itinerary for Simon Bridge's visit to Beijing and fixed a meeting with a top-ranking member of the Chinese Communist Party, the head of the secret police. I mean, how can you get away with this stuff? It's unbelievable. I can promise you, I mean, I can assure you that in this regard, New Zealand is a laughingstock uh, globally, in China itself, frankly, in the high-level Communist Party uh, member, you know, Communist Party leadership uh, contacts that I have, honestly, like, it's, it's unbelievable. They're laughing at New Zealand, uh, laughing certainly at the National Party. But when it comes to our closest allies in the Five Eyes, um, you know, it's just a sort of source of bewilderment. Around the time Dr Yang was in Beijing celebrating the birth of modern China with other Kiwi guests, Q&A asked National's Chief Press Secretary for an interview with him. The answer was no. The year of the rat had not started well. COVID-19 was sweeping China. Thousands of students enrolled at our schools and universities were stuck there. I wanted to ask Dr Yang about that and about the racism he and other Chinese had experienced. So on the 3rd of February this year, I wrote to Dr Young asking for an interview on those issues. There was no reply. Well, I'm in central Auckland and I'm on the way to meet a guy who wants to talk to me about Dr Young, but he doesn't want to be identified. Our community, I think, is really ridiculous. In a Western democratic country, a CCP spy background people still stayed in the parliament. And he wasn't the only member of the wider Chinese community I spoke to who didn't want to show their faces. Why is that? You're living in New Zealand. Yeah, maybe the majority don't understand, but we Chinese know that 
even we live in New Zealand, we still do not feel safe because of the Chinese Communist Party's influence. If you say something about against the Chinese government, maybe your family, your business, your visa, your passport will be in trouble. New Zealanders who are born in China, ethnically Chinese, who do not want to have Young Jen representing them because he is so close to the Chinese Communist Party uh, and his history as a military intelligence officer, those people deserve to be protected from the extension of Chinese power into New Zealand. After another unanswered interview request to Yang Jian in early June, I decided it was time to go to his office in Auckland. I wondered whether he would be around uh, in the next few days. I'm not sure, but yeah, I think if I write to him... We'll yes, yes, I, I've written to him. I've been writing to him for two years. A visit to his home yielded no response. Dr Yang was proving hard to track down, but early last week I knew he'd be chairing a public select committee at Parliament. Dr Yang, hey. some Fenner Owen from Q&A. Yeah. It's lovely to finally talk to you. Okay. I really mean that. Um, can you tell me why... You I'll just wait. Can you tell me why you won't give me an interview? Because you've got we very good done, connections done, with China and... And, and, and China is very important to New Zealand. You have the best connection. Now, so look, if it's about foreign policy, Jerry Brownlee would be the person to talk to. No, 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 it's not foreign policy. Listen, you have no Chinese students, 11,000 of them. Parliament's filming rules mean we can't show you any more of our exchange. Okay. So where do we go now with List MP Dr Yang Jian? It's not about the fact that he, he's, he's Chinese, it's the fact that he's had this role, that he has these relationships, he, he has these backdoor channels of communication, such as when he arranged the Politburo meeting, and we still don't understand how that works. Just engage, just be, be open. These are all questions that the New Zealand public, in a sense, has a right to know. Fina Owen with that report. Kōrero mai, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. And don't forget, we publish every episode of Q&A as a podcast without ads, so if you miss the show live, you can listen in on your commute. Up next, Judith Collins on Oravida, dirty politics and leadership ambitions. Plus, international students aren't even allowed back in the country, so why is demand skyrocketing off the back of COVID-19? Kia ora te whanau. welcome back. Judith Collins says she was thrown under the bus by John Key when the former Prime Minister publicly reprimanded her in response to the Oravida saga. It's one of the revelations in Collins' memoir, Pull No Punches. Here's the book. Judith Collins is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Oh, good morning, Jack. Why then, in an election year, when you have had very public leadership ambitions in the past, would you choose to publish a memoir? Because it's time for this to come out. And I felt last year when I started to write it that I could actually write the book now without any bitterness and just put the facts out there. I think it's really important to be in the right space and I didn't want to use anything for the last two and a half, three years mm. uh, because I thought that that would be harmful to people who were still trying to get to, you know, lead the, lead the country. Was there any concern in the National Party hierarchy about this book? Well, not that anyone's told me. I mean, I announced it on television in October last year. So there wasn't much they could do about it? Well, not really, but um, I think people will see when they read the whole book that I have been um, very 
careful to not destroy other people's careers. I want to go straight to the scandal. Let's talk about Oravida. You yes. were accused of a conflict of interest for undeclared meetings which benefited your husband's business dealing. That was the accusation. Yeah, that was the accusation. You say that John Key threw you under the bus. Well, not only that, it's not my husband's business. Um, he was simply a director, he was a director never of a the shareholder, business. never um, involved in this that This is the of accusation. Mm. I'm not saying no, it's no, true. No, no, but, but I need to put it to rest. Sure. And so the other thing is that John Key did know about it, and it wasn't anything to do with Oravita's business. It was to do with the meat exports that had been messed up um, by basically officials, and I put all of that into the book. You use that term. Mm. You say he threw you under the bus. Absolutely. That's how I felt. I felt it very much so, so he couldn't remember the discussion that we'd had in the Koru Lounge um, in front of my senior private secretary of months before. Um, and then after he'd done that, he then remembered it. So he remembered something about it. He wasn't quite sure whether it was the Oravita people who had offered to help New Zealand through its meat issues, not something that they were exporting themselves. Do you think upon reflection, John Key wasn't entirely truthful with you? No, I think he genuinely, um, I mean, I like to take him at his word that he genuinely forgot, but later in the afternoon, he then felt he could remember something. Mm. Now, I think if he was being disingenuous, then he wouldn't have said to me um, in front of another staff member, or, um, well, you know, I think mm. there is something in now, but never mind, don't worry about it, it'll all be fine. <laughs> well, it wasn't really, was it? <laughs> From Oravita to the whale oil, yeah. whale oil dirty politics scandal, mm. you, you were forced to resign as a minister after that. A an old email had showed Cameron Slater said you were, quote, gunning for mm. the head of the SFO. After the election that year, John Key removed your honorary title. Did you feel generally that John Key treated you unfairly, that he held you to a different standard to other... Well, not only that, but there's no, there's no point. Um, people make accusations about other people all the time. Third party... Um, email somebody else, I had nothing to do with it, knew nothing about it. And clearly the State Services Commission had told John Key's office that on an initial look at the file there was, it was completely, there was no evidence at all I'd ever done mm. anything like that. In fact, to be frank, I'd actually helped keep um, Adam Feeling's job when he came up uh, for you know, being reappointed. So how did you feel about John Key at this time? Well, at that time I felt very disappointed in him. Um, and, you know, I don't mince my words to somebody and I speak to them directly. I don't have to go behind their back. But I also knew that he was making a decision because if we hadn't done something or if he hadn't done something, I feel he felt that he could have lost the election and no longer been Prime Minister. And so he was um, obviously looking to himself, but also he had a party to bring across the line. So I didn't feel terribly bitter. I certainly did feel disappointed let down and he's far more ruthless person than myself so I know I wouldn't have done that to someone else but I also know that I did feel absolutely hurt when he took the honorific off me you know so I was no longer the honorable that was a terrible thing to do when the last person that had been done to was Tito Philip Field who'd served about six or seven years in jail why did he do that why did he need to do that well I don't think he did need to do that and why um, did he do it then well I don't know You'd have to ask him. I mean, at a later stage, and I didn't put it in the book because you know it's, no one else was there at the time. Um, but at a later stage, he said to me at a 
at um, something we're at, he said, oh yeah, sorry about that, that was a bit, you know, he said something like, oh, that, that was just bullshit or something like that, his words. Now, I just think, yeah. who knows, there was possibly this extreme excitement about um, let me ask something. This. Let me ask this, did John Key like you? I don't know, I don't know that he did. Um, I used to think he probably did because we often used to have um, breakfast together in the Coral Lounge in Auckland. Did you like him? London. I certainly did. I thought he was a very capable person. But did you like him as a well, person? Well, he's not my friend. He never was my friend. But I could always contact him. He was always very approachable. Um, and he didn't stand on mm. ceremony. So he wasn't somebody, and there certainly have been some people I've dealt with as, as leaders, who basically you'd have to... Um, make an appointment to see them before you could talk to them. Do you think upon reflection you had an appropriate relationship with Cameron Slater? Well, I think Cameron was working with the National Party hmm. um, and that's pretty obvious. But to try and make it as my relationship is absolute nonsense. Cameron is a personal friend of my husband and me, as hmm. his father is as well. And his mother was before she died. But um, the, one of the issues is, is that he's got... You know, he's had, obviously, um, serious strokes, and yeah. I've forgiven him for what he said, because what he said was completely it was, false. It was damaging, it it was was damaging completely for you false. in your career. And, and, yeah. and we should and point out that yeah, the, the, investigate, yeah. the inquiry that followed yeah. cleared you of wrongdoing in that, in that place. Is he a good person? Well, I don't know. Um, You're I think, a friend. You, well, you yeah, I think I don't try and judge everybody. I think that Cameron has some very good qualities, um, but he doesn't always have the judgment. And mm. I've I've moved on from it, and I, I've forgiven him for what he said and did. And he's because he was very genuinely sorry. Not everybody, by the way, Jack, has been genuinely sorry for some of the things they've done. Um, but, Who else has wronged you? <laughs> well, I, I haven't bothered to all that because, look, this is not their book. This is my book about my story. Yeah. Do you like the name Crusher? No, I don't actually. Um, it's not one I ever use myself because it's very one-dimensional um, and it essentially worked by giving people a vision of me which was mm. one dimensional and it actually gave people permission to treat me as something less than human. Who's your closest friend at Parliament? Oh, my closest friend at Parliament is several of those, um, if I'd say it. There's uh, Harati Hipango, MP for Whanganui, uh, Simeon Brown, MP in uh, Pakaranga, he's a very close friend, has been for many years. Um, David Bennett's a really good friend. Um, I think that there are several good friends and mm. when it's closest, um, well, we're all very close. Mm. And Matt King's a great guy in Northland, uh, Maureen Pugh, a really decent human being. Right, you've got lots of friends. Yeah. Why do, you, why do you think you've survived? Because you have had, a, a, objectively, a very colourful career and a career that I think many commentators over the years at different points had predicted might have reached its end. Oh, look, I, you know, you see it in the book. Um, <laughs> I. I think that you're very good I've at documenting survived, every time someone says your yeah, career is over. I, yeah. I have the records, Jack. <laughs> um, I'm a lawyer, see, so I keep the records. The um, I think I've survived because I've been straight up, and people know that mm. I'm not going to fluff around and mince my words. Why do you think? And why do you think? So, well, sorry to interrupt. Why, why do you think people always ask you mm. if you want to be the National Party leader or Prime Minister? Oh, I think people often ask that because it's a headline. Um, it's a story. They don't and, you ask know, other people. They ask you. Oh, well, I, I suppose because I don't, I don't... I don't know why, but, I mean, I just... You must know why. No, I... 
I've had plenty of roles in leadership and as I say to people, um, it's easy to say someone should do X or whatever. It's a tough job and mm. I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. I, I lead do an electorate. Do you think you'd be good at it? Look, I, it's not for me to judge and clearly um, it's not something that I necessarily is going, I'm not going to make the sacrifices that some people have to do it. Like I, I will not make the relationships that people need to do to do it because to me, it is more important that I am genuine and to myself. And so you, you know, think to be a leader, can, you, you can't, you can't well, you be can, genuine. You can absolutely, because I am a genuine person. And I am yeah. a leader within my own team and so within my own it. electorate. But it, all of us MPs are leaders in our mm. own way. And I don't think it's necessary for there just to be one leader. That's the only person who's led. Every one of us are leaders in our own way. Is there going to be a sequel? Oh, I would have thought so. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. I'm just thinking about. <laughs> I've got to get through the election, obviously, yeah. and everything else. But oh, I'm already thinking of a title, and I oh, didn't even pick be? that title. Oh, it could be um, my years as prime minister, Judith. No, I thought it could be. Well, there's lots of things. It could be take no prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, before we let you go, you've just seen the story about Dr. Yang Jian yeah. mm -hmm. as an elected member of parliament. Should he front for interviews? Well, I think he's not required to. He's not a minister. It's like not not like he's Phil Twyford, a minister but he's a who you can't get in. Of, of yeah. Look, he's also fronting to a lot of media and only only to Chinese language media. Well, Chinese uh, Chinese or Mandarin is his first language, mm. and clearly. So, but he, he, I mean, he was a language trainer, so English is yeah. no problem for him. No, he, he's no, English, English is very no well. Problem. He cheers select yeah. committees. I know that. He's, he, it's fine, but that's up to him and. Um, all my experience of Jan, I've never seen him being anything other than loyal to the National Party and uh, loyal to New Zealand. Mm. I've never seen anything else. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Here is the book plug. Judith Collins' Pull No Punches. Let's have a look at it. Published by Ellen and Unwin. is available in all good bookstores from this Wednesday, July 1st. I very much enjoyed reading it. Oh, good. Thank you. After the break, they're polling at less than 2%. So what is New Zealand First going to do to improve their stocks? We'll ask our panel. Then, a $5.1 billion question. How long before international students are back? The clean, green and safe part of uh, the New Zealand brand is also very important and that's been enhanced by our response to COVID. Uh, the Director-General uh, has acknowledged that the system uh, didn't deliver as it was expected to and has set about fixing that. I think that's actually the most important well, thing. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A and hooky mai to our panel this morning. Former MP Sue Maroney is now the Chief Executive of Community Law Centres and Ben Thomas, PR guy and former National Party Press Secretary. Kia ora kōrua. We Why wanted now? to show you that clip uh, from Health Minister David Clark, of course, um, effectively throwing Dr Ashley Bloomfield under the bus for some of the issues we've seen at the border so far. I wanted to start with the Minister this morning. Sue, what did you make of David Clark's comments? Well, I think um, there's, a, there's a broader context. So um, it's quite correct for the Minister to expect the Director-General of Health to have taken care of the operational issues. That, that's quite correct. And uh, many Ministers have expected that of, of their uh, top-line public servants over the years. So, so no problem there from, um, from that perspective. I think, though, it's in a broader context of 
what um, Dr Clark had been uh, responsible for during the COVID period. I think New Zealanders have not forgiven him for um, walking on the beach, for cycling, for not being on the ground in Wellington um, as the Minister of Health in those early days of COVID-19. So I think it's the broader context of, of that scenario that mm. um, the New Zealand public had a really swift response to seeing that particular clip mm. because, you know, after all, uh, whoever thought that we would hear the phrase um, Director-General of Health set to music, um, but we have had that in this country and mm. it's gone viral because we've suddenly got a public servant that people can see um, the, the worth and the value of and, and people love that. Yeah, it's interesting to consider the, the role of ministerial oversight in, in a situation like, like the crisis we are facing isn't it? Because you know, it was very interesting to me that Megan Woods has said now that she is overseeing the quarantining facilities, she's demanding that every day she has a form on her desk that says this is the number of people who should have been tested, this is the number of people who have been tested. I would have thought, Ben, that from an oversight perspective, that's the sort of thing Clark should have been demanding well before now. Of course it is. Now, let's not lose sight of the fact the failure does belong to Ashley Bloomfield as the Director General of Health. The Ministry of Health is... His depart is his ministry. He's the chief executive, mm. essentially. But the failure for the ch the failure of the chief executive to perform his job is the minister's problem. Um, this is where the doctrine of ministerial responsibility comes from. David Clark can't just sort of shrug his shoulders and say that the Ministry of Health is a big building over there that he occasionally gets updates from. Um, he's got to take a hands-on approach. I mean, you saw the contrast with a very capable minister, Megan Woods, today. Uh, talking about how she's already visited a number of facilities. David Clark couldn't find the time in his schedule to visit even one facility when he was overseeing it as minister. Uh, she at least has eliminated the unknown unknowns of things that she doesn't even, you know, that David Clark, for instance, didn't even seem to know mm. that he should be keeping on top of. Um, so, you know, a, a really stark difference between the two. Should Jacinda Ardern have fired Clark from his ministerial responsibilities? Of course. I mean, he is a weeping sore for the government, um, as Sue said. You know, there's those bad memories of his sort of arrogance and mm. obliviousness during lockdown. He's dropped the ball in the immediate aftermath of the lockdown. The problem for Jacinda Ardern is this is a COVID election. The Minister of Health is not just going to recede into the background like a, an underperforming minister usually does mm. uh, during an election period when, you know, attention is focused on the leaders. Um, the sooner she sacks him, the better. Is it too late before the election, Sue? Uh, no, it's not too late. And if you see uh, what the public are saying and looking on social media, um, people still have that at the forefront. It's actually starting to transfer onto how people feel about Jacinda Ardern's leadership. And so she does need to move um, to actually address that. So that's an interesting perspective. Let's have a quick look at the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll numbers because we saw a bit of a slip for, for Labor. Nothing they'll be too concerned about at this point. 50 points, uh, 50 percentage down nine points from the last poll. Nationals up to 38. The Greens at six, Act at three. New Zealand first at two. The Māori Party and New Conservatives at one. Do you think these errors at the border have have transferred into the into those polling numbers? Oh, I think there's a range of things. I think there's been um, a change in the national leadership over that period. There has been the mistakes at the border. You know, at a time where you know when we came down to level one, that was all the focus mm. should have been on was the border. So. Th 
you know, the the whole election process is going to be quite interesting because I don't think elections run how they used to anymore. Um, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen for the smaller parties. Traditionally under MMP, the smaller parties have done well during the election campaign time and their, their votes or their, their proportion has come up. But it's just so hard to predict at the moment what's going to happen next. Ben, what do you make of that eight or nine point shift in the polls? Labor going down nine points, National up eight. Yeah, so National should never really be under 40. Um, what we saw with National going up nine points is just National base voters returning. And yeah, a couple of reasons for that. The first is uh, Simon Bridges, who was just turned out to be totally unpalatable to voters by the end. Uh, he was replaced by Todd Muller, who, after a bit of a shaky start, seems to have been finding his feet a bit better. Um, and the second thing is that, uh, you know, Labour's vote, they pulled across a lot of those national voters on the back of the sort of euphoria of stamping out COVID in the community. And that sort of reflection of the competence in handling did obviously did take a huge hit last week. Is it likely, though, that having pulled Megan Woods into that oversight position that the bleed, if you want to call it that, will have been stemmed? I, I certainly wouldn't think that uh, it would be in free fall. Uh, the spin-off published a, a survey showing about, uh, or a pit poll rather, showing about 10% drop mm. in the number of people who thought that the government had handled uh, the COVID response in general well uh, following those border mishaps. And so, uh, you know, Look at, uh, looking at Megan Wood's interview mm. today, she obviously seems to be much more across it than her predecessor. Um, but that's still the big risk for the government. The, I mean, the, the most interesting number to me in that poll uh, isn't either of the major parties. It's New Zealand First. 1.8% polling. Sub two, how do you think Winston Peters is going to react to that? And how will that... Um, inform his behaviour leading up to the election, Sue? Well, I think it already has informed his behaviour leading up to the election. Um, he is uh, going out there with the messages that he's had in previous elections. He's, um, he's not taking much regard of his coalition uh, partner, government partner at the moment, and you expect that during an election period. But I think the thing to watch is the Northland seat, because I think that now looks like that's going to be um, the best option for New Zealand First in terms of getting back into Parliament. Um, we've got, you know, Shane Jones standing for New Zealand First mm. up there. His profile is really high, you know, whether you, whether you like what he says mm. or not, everyone knows who he is. Not many people can actually answer the question about who the actual MP for Northland is at the moment. He has a very low profile. So I think, you know, that's, that's an area that New Zealand First will be exploiting. What do you think, Ben? Well, the Northland MP is one of Judith Collins' good Close friends, friend. Matt King. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> the, yeah, look, New Zealand First are facing a big headwinds here. Um, you know, you saw them coming out today in the Financial Times talking about cutting immigration. Immigration is currently zero. I mean, you know, there, there, there's, not a lot, there's not a lot of sort of headroom for New Zealand First to operate in their traditional stomping grounds like yeah. uh, Sue was talking about. Um, obviously, they're really trying to distinguish themselves from the Labour Party to show that they're still sort of oppositional. You know, it's still mm. Winston holding, keeping the people honest. Um, but it's, it's becoming really hard. You know, it's, it's, they're still cellar dwelling at about 2%. Um, Is there any way National would consider a deal there in Northland? It's pretty clear from Todd Muller's comments uh, that he has a bit of a personal affinity for Winston that goes back probably to their time in the Beehive mm. in the 90s. 
Um, and so it's, that door is certainly much more ajar. Winston Peters doesn't have the same sort of personal animosity that he has mm. towards Muller that uh, really coloured the relationship with Bridges. At the same time, I'm not sure that it uh, that it's in Nationals' interests mm. to have New Zealand first in Parliament. So at, at the same time, I think it's more likely than it has been. Uh, but I, I don't think it would serve national strategic we, we, you interests. Know, we're 12 weeks from... This, this time in 12 weeks we'll be sitting here post-election analysing the results. And there will be time to make noise. I think of something like um, Ihumata, where we know the government is close to, to finally inking the deal um, and sorting out Ihumata, and I would have thought that's potentially the sort of issue that New Zealand First would um, maybe win 1% or 2% with. But um, before we leave you, Dr Jian Yang, as an elected Member of Parliament, should he be fronting for interviews soon? Oh, I'm shocked uh, to think of a Member of Parliament who wouldn't be excited to tell their story and, and give the public their background. I mean, that's the first, I would think. Most MPs love to talk about who they are and what they bring. He seems less excited. <laughs> ben? Look, as somebody who used to work in a Minister's office, I think the more that backbenchers can be encouraged not to talk to the media, the better. <laughs> Uh, at the there's a responsibility, <laughs> isn't there? I mean, the public have a right to know who's, at, who's in Parliament. At, at the same time, look, there's, there's real questions there. You know, he, he worked either alongside or with the security mm. intelligence services in, uh, or the intelligence services in China for, what, about 15 years. And then, according to his, his story from three years ago, they just sort of wrote him a pleasant note and said, enjoy your time in the Five Eyes countries you know, make sure to write sometimes. It, it, I'm, I'm not a, an intelligence maestro. I never sort of reached those kind of high levels where you get led into all the state secrets. But it, it, there does seem to be a bit of a plausibility gap there. And it would be something that would be mm. good to get more answers on. All right. Thank you so much for your time and insights, as always. Ben Thomas and Sue Maroney. After the break on Q&A, New Zealand universities have seen a surge of interest from international students who want to study here. The problem is those students aren't allowed in. Kia ora, welcome back. Universities are reporting a significant increase in the number of foreign students who want to study here. But instead of cashing in on the interest, the sector is facing losses in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Already, Cabinet has rejected proposals for allowing students back into New Zealand. And with capacity issues in quarantine, it seems unlikely that will change before the election. I spoke with the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, Professor Grant Guilford, and began by asking if international students are keen to come to New Zealand. Yes, they are. We've still got very strong applications for trimester two and trimester three. They're very strong interest still. What has COVID-19 done to New Zealand's value proposition as an education provider? I think it's enhanced it. Uh, we've already had a high quality reputation for the actual study but the clean, green and safe part of uh, the New Zealand brand is also very important and that's been enhanced, enhanced by our response to COVID. We've also had some changes in the competitive landscape with the US, the UK and to a lesser extent Australia struggling to manage the disease. The Australians have uh, shot themselves in the foot somewhat with their attitude to China and their lack of empathetic response to their own international students and then most recently with a bogan attitude to the humanities that have come through. So all of that um, means there's a great opportunity for New Zealand universities. Are you able to quantify that opportunity? Yes, we, we're looking at an upswing at the moment in our enrolments of about 10% uh, in terms of applications. Of course, they can't yet come into the country. Is that year on year? or That's year on year, yes. So it's, it's a positive looking trend. And so for us, um, uh, that's uh, in terms of a, of a single university here, it would be about a $5 million upswing in 
revenue across the country that would be uh, about tenfold that, so around about a fifty, 50 million dollars. Yeah. Do students want to, to come to New Zealand and, and physically be here or do they want to study online at the moment? They would much prefer to be here, so um, online options for international students and interestingly our domestic undergraduate students are not preferred. They prefer a face-to-face -face and blended experience where there's some flexibility with online but there's a vital, vibrant campus experience as well. I know there has been a, a lot of pressure from the sector to, to move quickly in this space with those term two or semester mm. two dates fast approaching. Can you talk us through how you would get students back in New Zealand safely? So our um, first point would be that we would follow whatever regulations the government wants us to follow to keep New Zealanders safe and so we're still patiently waiting for that uh, protocol to be advised to us and we understand the difficulties for government over that, getting that right. But um, my uh, view is that we would shift the balance of the risk management to the source country. So we would only be allowed to draw students from countries that have a low prevalence of the disease. And to give you an example, if we were drawing students from China uh, at the moment, there'd only be a 1 in 20 million risk that the, a student getting on a plane at the other side was COVID positive because the disease has such a low prevalence there at the moment. If you put a negative test requirement before they get on the plane, you essentially eliminate the risk right then in the source country before those students arrive in New Zealand. So, so how might that work? So there would be a requirement of the uh, access to the flight that you can demonstrate um, a document in a documented way that you've got a negative test result from, from the source country. Right, so, so a, stu a student would have a negative test in the source country, they would then travel to New Zealand yeah. On a chartered flight or, or on a commercial flight? Most likely chartered flights, so, so depending right. on the particular city, but for us it would be chartered flights and we thought that was um, uh, outside of our reach, the, 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 the sort of the, something that only film companies could be interested in, but it turns out there's a lot of planes flying just with freight um, and relatively empty cabin, cabins for passengers. So the costs of chartering look quite practical. Okay, you charter them, you bring those students to New Zealand and then what happens? And then into two weeks of managed isolation. So we've all worked through um, f uh, to, to put tentative arrangements in place with different facilities that those students would be bused to as a cohort, go through two weeks of isolation, test negative before returning to class. And then the education starting while they're in the isolation so the students aren't losing two weeks uh, because of course we can do that mm -hmm. online. I, I know those managed isolation facilities in some plans include halls of residence but there will be many people watching this who remember their time in halls of residence who don't think that that would be a very practical option for people yeah. remaining yeah. physically separate. No, for, for us we not, would want, we're not, are not going to do that so we've got a, another facility um, identified that uh, as a separate facility to our halls of residence. Those uh, universities who are interested in using halls of residence are thinking about separate wings of the halls of residence, not, not, not mixing the um, domestic students or international students who are in the hall with those recently arriving to be quarantined students because we've seen how that doesn't mm. work in the hotel systems in New Zealand at the moment. Yeah, I mean at the moment it's clear that there are some capacity issues around quarantine. I think everyone has been surprised at the number of New Zealanders returning back yeah. to New Zealand. Is there any way though that you could bring students back as part of the government run quarantine process? Yes. 
I think we could, but as you point out, the capacity for government is very limited. Uh, as I understand it from government officials, it's, it's as low as, or has been as low as 250 people arriving a day as being the capacity. And there's been a number of constraints on that, but the most important one has been the labour, which is uh, drawn from the public service. So people like customs officers and security officers and police mm. and, and our army. So uh, the only way to scale this is to open this up to the universities or to the private sector to put that labour in. But we have to have the right protocols to follow and then we have to be held to account to follow them by an audit process. Who would pay for all of this? Um, for the students it would be the universities and the students themselves. So our international students are full cost recovery students, so there's no taxpayer subsidy and we have to apply that same principle. That would apply to quarantine as well? Exactly, yeah. What has the government said with the proposals that you have passed on at this stage? So we, we presented a proposal almost exactly like this in February, um, but which was not successful at Cabinet. And the main reasons given were really just the, the um, I suppose public sentiment at the time was not right, and the government had a sole focus on bringing the prevalence of COVID down, and so there was a bandwidth problem for government mm. and, for the, and for the for the public health authorities, which which we've accepted, and so we've been waiting patiently for um, a new protocol to be agreed. Um, that protocol had been agreed with Ministry officials, um, Ministry of Health officials, but it didn't pass cabinet, um, and so we're now waiting for. That the political context and the social licence to be available for us to get on with what we think is a relative, or a very safe approach, drawing students from countries that have a low prevalence of the disease, so not open slather. Semester two isn't far off though? No, I think uh, that's um, probably now gone as an opportunity. Um, for us that's mid-July, so if we were um, given the green light, arranging visas for the students, arranging charter flights, uh, signing all the contracts around the quarantine facilities. Hard to imagine that happening by then. But mid-November for trimester three, so summer school, that would be a good possibility. Do you, in the meantime, risk losing some of those international students to Northern Hemisphere institutions? We do. Um, we're down uh, uh, about 6% uh, of the people who, are, who were going to arrive in our trimester one chose that they, they chose another uh, institution to go to which offered a face-to-face -face experience. That competition has got less for us as the COVID has got out of control in the US and is not under control in the UK and then Australia closed their borders as well so that's less of a risk for us than it was before. You say though that, that students despite wanting to be there in person are happy to study online as, as a second best option. Why is there any great rush? Why can't we wait until the first semester of next year? Well, there is only, only really it's just an opportunity that's being missed. So from a, from a, a returning student, we've mm -hmm. had um, students who uh, had their, their studies interrupted. They've got their lives on hold while they want to come back and finish their studies. For some, they can't do it online because it's a, a science course or a design course and they need to have that face-to-face -face experience or a field work program. But uh, for the majority, it's just the quality of the experience that they want in, in a broad sense. Mm. Being part of an English-speaking country, particularly New Zealand, and experiencing all that we have to offer as a country, so people are desirous of that. And then from an economic contribution to the country, that's what we're missing out on. The students spend about, the university students, about 700 million a year 
uh, in um, the local economies around the universities and about the same in the universities. Mm. That's Vice-Chancellor Professor Grant Guilford. Ko matū, that's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and now mihi kia koutou i or koutou pānui. Thanks for your contributions. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is live on the programme this time next week. Until then, thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.